This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number 17 of the subject entitled The Form of Sound Words. We are using the alphabetical approach to this as a means to an end. There's nothing, nothing to justify it except that it's useful. And we have arrived at the words everlasting or eternal or eternity and the endeavour to see what the scripture says about such wondrous teaching. We have sung just now, and the verses ended with the words, now and through eternity. I suppose it's possible for the human mind to think of eternity in the future as never coming to an end. But I don't think any human mind is able to think of eternity that never had a beginning. So far as ordinary human logic is concerned, that which never had a beginning can't be existing now. You think of it now. Think of it. You can't, you can't in any measure conceive eternity. All the figures in the world will never give you. If a person started off at the rate of light, travelling at um, whatever it is, 180,000 miles a second, doesn't matter. If it's a few minutes out, it won't matter. And he goes backwards for millions and millions and millions of ages. Is no nearer the beginning than when he started. Your mind boggles at it. Now God has never laid that burden upon you and me. He takes the smallest little piece out of the whole of eternity and writes a Bible all about that little piece. And he starts it with this wonderful little word for you and me in the beginning. That's all. And then he puts in 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end. Now, if we're wise, we're going to make all our study fit in between those two places. Well, it's a very minute little bit in comparison with eternity, but we find it's enough to occupy our attention. In the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 Corinthians 15, and then cometh the end, when God shall be all in all. What's going to take place after that? I don't know. You don't know. And the reason is, God hasn't told us. He's only warned us. But I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. He's only showed unto us, by his Spirit, some of the things that foreshadow that wondrous time. Well, now, we're wanting to get down to the words, so that when we speak to others, or think of the Scriptures themselves, we don't carry with it ideas that have been imported into it, and so bring tremendous problems and uh, difficulties. Now, in this Hebrews chapter 1 that we looked at just now, uh, we read together, those of you who are listening to this tape, you may not have known that, but we just read Hebrews chapter 1, and you notice that there's a tremendous lot of references to time, even in that one chapter. Sundry times, time past, last days, and so on. And... Um, Thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. But in verse 2, there's a word that should be given a little bit more attention. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And if you're looking at the original, the word world is the word usually translated by the word ever or the word age. Now, you may be hypercritical and dismiss the authorised version and say, there, you can't trust it. But that's because you're ignorant, friends, excuse me, won't you? Because 
you ought to be very careful before you criticize uh, if you knew the origin of your own speech that you used, English language, you'd know that the word world was correct. Oh, you say, how to make that out? Well, originally, the word would be spelled, from its origin, V-I-R-E-L-D. V-I-R is the word virile, and it means a man. And E-L-D means an old man. Or it means the age of man. And so the word world means the age of man. And it's perfectly correct. But then, as we've got to make the word world do justice to the word cosmos, which means the created world of things, we get muddled up, don't we? So it's wise now to let the word world be for creation and use the word age for that which has to do with time. So this is not merely the making of creation. It is the providing and the uh, arranging of the ages. And in the same chapter, he, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth from the heavens of the work of his hands. That's the cosmos, the world. So you see how needful it is just to be careful that we use the right expressions. Now, the two words that we have to ponder their meaning, in the Old Testament is the word olam, and in the New Testament is the word ion. O-L-A-M is the easy way to spell it in English, and A-I-O-N is the way to spell the other word, the two words. Now, um, let's see a little bit of some of the differences for a moment. Will you turn to two references that need to be a little bit distinguished? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Here we have it. It says in verse 3, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds. The God of this world. You notice that? Now will you turn to John 14, 30. John 14, 30. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Well now the pity of it is, Two distinct words are used. It's the God of this age and the Prince of this world. You see? When, it's, when he's called the God, he's called the God of the age. When he's called the Prince, he's the Prince of the world. And they have little different connections, you see. So, even in cases like that, it's wise to get beneath the surface if you can and use these things with some element of distinction. Or again, take that dreadful subject of eternal conscious torment, because we get fire, everlasting fire, and so on, you see. And um, there's a passage, I think, in, in Jude that is worth considering in this connection. Jude is writing uh, about punishment, and he says... He says in verse 6, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, 
are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire from heaven. And that fire from heaven, which destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah so much so, that archaeologists are not sure where the remains are, they think they may be underneath the the Dead Sea somewhere and they're groping about. But the fire is not burning there, friends, it has been burning there for centuries. The fire did its work, it's finished. But they set, are set forth as an example of eternal fire. So that if it meant fire that went on and never went out, it would be blazing away now. But that isn't true. And then there's another thing to be said about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew the 11th chapter, our Saviour rebukes those nations, those cities, that had had wonderful works wrought in their presence. And he said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for one of those cities. Well, how it could be more tolerable for anything that was everlastingly burning is impossible to explain. So don't you see what a need there is to be a little bit guarded in the way in which we use expressions. Eternal fire, like eternal punishment, doesn't mean that it's going on to last forever in the sense of activity, but its work will be done. That punishment or that fire is complete when it's accomplished its purpose, and even though it not be blazing now, it'll never be revived or altered. But that is a little bit beside the point. We are looking more cons- we're at the way in which it's dealt with in general teaching. But there's one other passage that is very often haunting the minds of God's people. I will deal with that, and then we'll leave the question of punishment for the time being. To prove that those who are in hell will be conscious of torment forever. The words of our Saviour are quoted in the Gospels, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. They say, if that doesn't mean eternal conscious suffering, what does? Well, you say, how do you answer that? Well, I say to them, do you know that our Saviour was quoting the Old Testament Scriptures? I say, no, was he? Wouldn't it be a good idea before you built any such awful doctrine as to read what it says in the book that he quoted? Now he quoted the prophecy of Isaiah, the last verse. So in case anyone should not be sure of that, will you just turn back to the last chapter of Isaiah and read the last verse. It says in verse 23, and they sh- it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Do you need to have explained to you that carcasses are people that are dead? Now you see, the word hell, sometimes in the scriptures, translates the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is just a place. And if some of the folks who go on a tour of Palestine, they can come back and they can tell their friends they've actually been in hell. Because Gehenna was the great rubbish constructor, destructor, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And carcasses of animals and sometimes of of those who have been executed would be consigned there as the dreadful punishment. And they would either be consumed by the sulphur that burns at the bottom, or if they happened to be caught by a ledge on the cliffs, 
that are consumed by worms, it's nothing to do with tormenting people. So we'll leave that part of it for the time and get to other features that may be more uh, in line with our own teaching. What about the meaning of this word olam? Because this is the Old Testament and we come through the Septuagint to the New Testament. What do these words originally mean? Olam. If you open the uh, Jewish prayer book, you would discover, if it was an English translation, that so many prayers commence with the words, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. Well, that's the word Olam, the word universe. And the word Olam can actually be used of a crowd of people like there might be at a football match. Meaning to say, you've got no idea what the number is. It's something veiled, concealed or hidden. Now, I'll give you a chapter and verse for that. You'll have to look it up afterwards if you wish, where we have the word Olam. And that is in um, Psalm 90, verse 8. One passage only I'm giving you, just by way of a specimen. Psalm 90, verse 8. says in verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Now that's the word translated forever. Secret. Secret. It's not our eternal sins. It's our secret sins. And it means to conceal. It goes on to mean a young, a very young man or a very young woman. Well, they're not eternal, but they are concealed or they're hidden. They don't come out in prominence till they reach adulthood. So you see, you've got to be watchful. So that the word for what we got so many times, the word eternity and the word forever, means a period of time about which we have very little knowledge. We do not know the end of it. Now, wouldn't that be better if we said, that's what we mean when we speak, oh, no, we know the beginning and end of the whole thing, we've got it all wrapped up and therefore we get tangled up. Then on top of that, I think I've given you here, on this chart, uh, yes, a little way halfway down from the word everlasting or eternal, you see those words in the green lettering there, le olam va'ed. Well now, le is the preposition to. Olam is the word we're considering, the age. Va is the word and, and ed is yet, still, or further. Now that is translated in our Bible for ever and ever. Well, if the first ever means eternity, which has no end, what's the idea of saying forever and yet further? I've heard my mother say when I was a boy, forever and a day after, but that was a little expression used in South London. But in the Bible it says forever and a day after. Forever and yet further. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they could only see to a certain period. And they didn't know what God was going to do after that. So they didn't say it's going on forever and ever. They said this will go on forever and yet further until he comes and puts the new thing in process. Oh, we're missing a tremendous lot. And then you find we have some passages which say the age of the ages. So what do you make of that? If one word age means eternity, which has no beginning or end, what are the ages that follow? You see, it's, it suddenly becomes almost nonsense. But if it's 
if it's the age of the ages, the climax age, like we have the Pharisee of the Pharisees, there's an age which is the climax of all ages, it's not multiplying them, it's focusing. So there is a need, isn't there, to have a form of sound words so that we get some idea, however small and remote it may be, of what God means when he uses these words. Well, now, will you look at this chart again to get a little guidance as to the way in which they're used? Under the word eternal and forever, you will see I've written Ion and Ionios. Now, Ion is the noun, meaning the word age, and Ionios is the adjective, meaning age long, age abiding, age like and translated eternal. Well, now, let's look at the, the next line that comes beneath there. Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 1 to chapter 3. Now, in those three chapters, we have these words in our English version. World, course, age, eternal, and world without end. All for one word in one epistle. Are you trying to write a letter to your friend and use one word to me, the world which had a commencement, and an age which would have an end, and the word eternal which has not a beginning or end, and then say the finish its world without end. You say, you're, you're not giving true place to the word of God to use things like that. Now supposing you glance at the bottom of this chart, where I've got the word iron in Ephesians, set out, put it all down as it comes. So shall we take a look at that as an example of the value of giving place to the words which the Holy Ghost teach, comparing spiritual with spiritual, and forget a little bit what other people may have said about it. You may say to me, oh, well, we've got to listen to you. Well, I'm only just a pointer. I'm pointing to what's in your Bible and mine, whether I point it out or not, it's there. But inasmuch as you may not have at the moment the opportunity to search and see, you take notice of this and then go back to it afterwards. Now notice what happens. Here we have a perfect pattern of the distribution of the word ion in this one epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, 21. Far above all principality of power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's the word ion, this age, or this Ever, you couldn't say that, but this age, you see. So I put that on the top. Now run your eye right down to the bottom to get the balance of that in chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, now we have then, we have the rulers, principalities and powers, and it says, um, you remember, not only in this world, but also in that is to come, and it ends up with the principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, which are not going on future. They're going to be finished. These are the evil ones. So now we've got the beginning and the end of that story. Now come back again. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says in verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wedded in time past, 
he walked according to the course of this world. Now that word course is the word age, or the word forever, or the word eternity. You say, how could that be? Well, an age is not merely a length of time. An age is a characteristic. We have the age of, say, uh, horsepower. Then we have the age of the locomotive engine. Then we have the age of the motor. Then we have this space age. And what we're going to get next, nobody knows when it's coming, you see. And that doesn't mean periods of time only. It means the character of those periods of time. So, the, the authors of the, the writers of this authorised version, they said, in time past, you walked according to the age that was characteristic of this world. Only they got there the word course. Well, should we look down at the bottom here at the balance in chapter 3? Oh, and then you notice I've put against that Energio. Now, energio is our English word energize. To in work. So we better finish that verse too. When in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now look at the balancing, chapter 321. It says in verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. See it? Energio, worketh in us. There's the power that worketh in us. Over against the power that worked in us once when we were unsaved. Now is a power that works in us because we belong to him. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Well now that world without end is this the generation of the age of the ages or the generation of the ages of the ages. See? Throughout all ages. So now we've got this present age, this world and its age, with its evil in working and we look forward to the age of the ages when the inworking that wrought, was wrought in Christ when he was raised from the dead is going to answer all prayers beyond our uh, believing and beyond our thinking. So we're not losing anything by plotting this out, you see. Now come back again, chapter 2-7 of Ephesians. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In the ages to come he's going to show that. Well, what balance is that? Chapter 3, 11. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that sounds a very wonderful statement. An eternal purpose. But it may be hiding from us that what the Apostle said, that these ages have a purpose. The purpose of the ages. So now we've got these two in, in balance. That in the ages to come, he's going to show this kindness and according to the purpose of the ages which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord and all the consequences that flow from that. Well, that brings us to the centre. Chapter 3, 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship, or as the revised reads, what is the dispensation of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, which since the ages hath been hid in God. You see, you've lost nothing by putting the word age down simply each time. In fact, it makes a complete whole. But if you were to write down the words world, course, age, eternal, world without end, and put them down, you say, well, I don't know what to do with this lot because there's nothing in harmony. Well, that's your disharmony. 
the harmonies in the book. Well, now shall we turn our attention to the Old Testament for a moment. This word, used of God, this very word that we're looking at, is used of God from everlasting to everlasting. Of course, that sounds very wonderful, doesn't it? But you see, when they've got the, exactly the same word in the same Old Testament, when they're speaking about man, well, they can't say man from everlasting, can they? So they put down, he was from old. Well, you see, if you've got a book which uses one word like that, and once it's put down everlasting, and the next time it's put down of old, you say, now, there's something wrong here. You, 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 you're putting two words where the man who reads the original only reads one. But let's see it again. It not only says from everlasting, but it says ever, ever of old. Or over that time it says a long time. Or over that time it says since the beginning of the world. So you see, the, the, the translators of our Bible have to face the fact that the word that they were investing with eternity when it was used a man, couldn't be done. So they had to alter the word and limit it and, and write it small, so we have, when it's used a man, old time, a long time, or since the beginning of the world, well, no, you can't play fast and loose with language like that, you see. A world, a, a thing has either got to have an eternal meaning, or it's got to be limited. And by the time you've gone through all the passages and weighed them over and the origin of the words, you become conscious that we've been burdened with an idea of eternity and the Bible doesn't speak of it. It tells you that the ages are under the control of Christ, that the ages have a purpose, and the age of the ages will be reached, and the climax will be there, and you say, and what's going to be afterwards? Well, friends, you've got enough to do to find out what's taking place during the ages, and leave the afterwards to the mercy and the love of God, who has given you one word that in the ages to come is going to show his wondrous kindness to you. You see, that's all right. So we're not losing anything. And if you feel sad because some of those friends that you thought were going to be in everlasting fire forever and ever and now they're not going to be, well, I think one day you'll be glad, even if you're not now. So should we look again at this use of the word which I've got underneath? You see, le olam va ed. That comes... Uh, what have I got there? Exodus 15.18. Let's examine that a little bit more closely now. Exodus 15, verse 18. And of course, you know, these words occur many, many times in the Scriptures. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Well, that's quite legitimate if we're thinking of the Lord, but supposing he doesn't say he's going to reign forever and ever. Mm. Would you say he is? Well, so wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 15. Then cometh the end. For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And then shall the Son be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. Now that would make you think that the reign is going on and on until every enemy is subjected and the kingdom is perfected and laid at the feet of the Father. You can't have it both ways, you see. So look back at that word, la olam va ed. La olam va ed. I've got on the top of it, forever, until, that's one way. And the next one is, 
forever and beyond, forever and yet further. In the Old Testament, the prophets didn't see to the extreme end. That doesn't come first. They only saw so far. But they were warned by the Spirit of God who dictated the word to them that they must put it in such a way that it didn't prevent when Christ came that the certain mysteries that were hid in the word should then be revealed and so it says forever and yet further. And in the Septuagint, the Greek version, it's just the same. It's unto the age and yet, eti, yet further. Or beyond. Or in addition. Well now, you get this word olam in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think we'll turn to that just to give another illustration of the way in which we profit rather than lose by putting these words down and giving them their face value. Now if you're not sure about Ecclesiastes, it comes after Proverbs, just after Psalms and Proverbs. Now Ecclesiastes is a book which is searching to try to discover certain answers. And in the course of this discovery, there are these words, the word olam, which is the word translated forever. In chapter 1, verse 4, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. You see, there's a statement. Well, we leave it at that because you might say, oh, well, that's what it means. In contrast to the generations that pass, the earth abides forever. But suppose we look at the last occurrence again, as we did before in, in Ephesians, chapter 12, verse 5. The last occurrence of this word, translated forever. 12.5. This is that picture of um, a man reaching the end of his days, the keepers of the house tremble, the grinders cease because they're few, you know. And it says in verse 5, When they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fears shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, that refers to his white hair, the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, you know, when you can't pick up a thing and somebody has to give it to you. And desire shall fail, because man goeth to his... Now what are we going to do about it? Eternal, no, long home they've put now. See, same word. The earth abided forever, and he goes to his long home. But why didn't they put eternal home or something? Because he's going to be in the grave. But he says, can't do that because there's resurrection coming. Oh, well, then you're wrong then. You see, you've invested the word with something which is too much for it. So now we begin at the beginning. Uh, the, the earth abides unto the age. And the earth, as we know it, is going to pass through a fire and going to be melted and burned up and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. What are you going to do about that, you see? Even though it doesn't mean the whole terrestrial ball is going to vanish. But the surface of it, so far as we're concerned, is going through a consuming fire. Well, let me come back again in chapter 1, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time which was before us. Already of old time. Already from eternity. Well, there are many things which we can speak of that are before us that we're not going back to eternity. You see, that's not in mind at all. Then we come down to chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6, where we have this word olam, or eternal, or ever. 
Now their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in the thing that is done under the sun. Here we have these limitations. Chapter 1 says it's limited. It's already been of old time. Here he says they have no portion forever. Nothing to do with eternity. All time, as it were, is stopped for them because they've come to a finish. And then it pursues the same subject in chapter 2.16. This word, Olam. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever. See, no remembrance forever, he says. And in chapter 3.14 and 15, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God will do it, that men should fear before him. That which hath been, is now. That which hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. He's dealing with time, and if you stick to the word age, I know that whatsoever God doeth, he does in view of the age, and the purpose of the ages. Not so much forever. But he's got this age in mind. And you'll see it come back again in chapter uh, 3, verse 11. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart. Now, could you say he has set eternity in their heart? This is the same word. But he has set the world or the age. He's put limits to you and to me so that we should not... Oh, shut my book up. So that we should not discover what God does from the beginning unto the end. I'll read that again. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world or the age in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. So you're not losing anything when you drop the word eternal and the word ever and keep to the word age and age abiding. And so you may go on with many, many things. There's another expression that I think we ought to include in this because it impinges upon our own calling. Will you turn with me to 2 Timothy 1 9? 2 Timothy 1 9. Now here it says, Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Well, that's a fairly free and easy rendering. When you look at the original, you say, before age times, or before the times of ages. There's no word for world, no word for began. Now, this is balancing Ephesians. We are told that we were chosen in him before the foundation or the overthrow of the world. Shall we say chosen in him before Genesis 1 verse 2? And the ages commence with Genesis 1 verse 2. And before the ages, the choice was made. Now the ages start, they go right on to the book of the Revelation is completed and the rest, and the ages of the ages are reached. The sun yields a perfect kingdom. God is all in all. The purpose of the ages is finished. And then another another passage, uh, which we ought to consider, parallel to this, is Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, 
and the acknowledging of the truth which after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Then in one verse, you've got eternal life and the word world. You've got eternal life and you've got the world began. You see, it's a difficult thing to use language like that and not get mixed up, isn't it? So we have now, in hope of this age-abiding life that goes on to the ages are finished, which God cannot lie promised, before the times of ages that start with the book of Genesis. We're not losing anything. You say, well, if we've only got age-abiding life, what's going to happen when the ages end? And the Lord said, because I leave you shall live also. Don't you worry about that. You've got the life of the ages when God's purpose is gradually ripening and when it's all done, you have the gift of immortality, which has nothing to do with the word age or the olam or the ion or anything. Now, I'm conscious that this has been a difficult subject, difficult for me and rather difficult for you. Uh, but you've got the analysis now in front of you that you go go back to and in your own quiet study you can turn up all these passages and many more by the use of a concordance and you'll discover that it would be very wise if you left out the word eternity and you put in the word age and the word ages and you would then realise that God is limiting you. He's put the age in your heart that you shouldn't find out what God is doing from the beginning to the end. He says so. Don't go probing into the beginning because you'll lose yourself. Don't go wandering too far at the end as you'll lose yourself. But get to know a bit more intimately what he's doing now so that you may find your place, be useful to him and then one day when you are a little bit more adult than you are now and I am too in the glory he'll give us an opportunity to begin to speculate a bit more what eternity may mean. And even then I think we shall find it'll be enough for us to burden our minds when we are free from all the clogs and the possibilities of our limitations down here. So, here it is. Another attempt to seek a form of sound words so that when we use these expressions, we use them in harmony with the way in which they're distributed in the Scriptures. And if we can't always bring them to a, a focus and get an absolutely clear picture, well, it's better to be on the safe side and say, I won't invest these words with something which is contrary to their meaning. The original meaning is that this is a period of time about which you have no real conception as to just its beginning or just its end. But you know that God has it under control and one day they're going to finish and God will be all in all.